Psalm 149 is one of five psalms that end the Hebrew Psalter on a crescendo of praise. You'll notice, if you want to turn there to 146, you'll notice beginning at 146, Psalm 146, each of these last five psalms starts and ends with the imperative, praise the Lord. As a unit, these psalms comprise a stirring call to God's people to lift up the praise of their sovereign creator with exuberant joy. Did you hear that? It seems very obvious to us, and we can miss that so quickly. Become so dull to the wonder of this call. Every human being on earth knows how to praise something or someone. A family member. How many parents praise their children? How many mates their mate? How many children their parents? Take a sports hero, if that doesn't work or a musician, or artist, a craftsman, or philosopher, an author, a teacher, an inventor, a favorite pet, a hobby, food, a car, a favorite vacation spot. We all praise something or someone. All human beings lift up praise, but only God's people possess this high calling to praise God. We hear these simple words, Praise the Lord. And we can become so quickly dull to them. It is a high calling to praise the Lord. All fish swim, but only a few, such as the salmon, are called to travel from the ocean upstream against the torrents of a mighty river to spawn. Virtually every bird flies, but only a few, like the eagle, are called to soar to unprecedented heights. All People praise, but only God's people are privileged to truly praise Him and to perform His will in this world. According to Psalm 149, we are to form in truth a unique culture. A unique culture of people that have a different word of praise in our mouths and a different task in this world We notice that this unique culture is characterized, first of all, by the exaltation of God's splendor, by His praise. Verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the saints. Praise the Lord means to boast in who God is, to lift up His name so that His glory is seen. One way that we do that, as is indicated here, is by raising to Him a new song. Singing to the Lord in the assembly of the saints a new song. Let's consider that phrase, the assembly of saints, first of all. That is the congregating together of the people of God. The people that He has saved. In the context of Psalm 149, the salvation in view is particularly Israel's deliverance from Babylonian captivity. Now it includes with that God's election of the nation as His own but perhaps most specifically in context, the deliverance of Israel from Babylonian captivity. Israel has returned to the promised land, and it is once again able to assemble together to sing songs. It is their high and holy calling to gather, to sing praises to their merciful Redeemer. Praise the Lord with a new song in the assembly, says the psalmist. And it is no less dramatic that God has called us together today here at this place as a congregation of individuals called out from the world to sing the praises of God in assembly. 
And we are called to sing a new song. Spiritually vibrant people look for ways to express their joy in God. The new song is perhaps a song of a different nature, of a different kind, a song that lifts up the glories of God rather than constantly trashing everything that he believes is true and right and everything that is in accordance with his character, as is so true of the songs of our world. But I think it also would include new songs. Old songs are absolutely vital to the faith of the believing community. And we labor hard here as a church not to discard those songs. They're vital to us. But I think also that a vibrant community of faith will encourage gifted people to use their creative energies to exalt God with new words. I wonder if we appreciate as a church how significant it is that new songs are routinely written for our services here at Eden Baptist Church. They are. We don't necessarily put that in lights or express that, but there are words that are put together that, are, that seek to reflect the passages of Scripture that we consider together. I wonder if we appreciate that. Do you appreciate how vital it is for us to learn new songs together as we did today? That wasn't coordinated. That just happened because it's part of the culture of our church. That first song that we sung with the, with the uh, music there and the text there, it is important that we keep learning new expressions. You would probably get a little bit tired of it, wives, if your husband sent you the same birthday card or Valentine's card every year, wouldn't you? Or even if they just rotated three really good ones. By about year 12 or 15, you'd really start getting tired of that, wouldn't you? Now, God doesn't get tired of our old songs by any means because they reflect the old faith and they reflect the faith of saints in the past. It's not a perfect parallel, but there's some truth to that. God rejoices when His people use their energies to write new words and to sing new songs to Him. The use of new songs in our assembly is purposeful and it is meaningful. It is a vital aspect of a vibrant culture of praise that has not fossilized. The psalmist now emphasizes the object of our praise. Sing a new song in the assembly of the saints. Verse 2, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the people of Zion be glad in their king. God is our maker in a biological sense. But the stress here falls on God as the creator of the nation of Israel, which he rules as her sovereign king. In like manner, we gather together today to worship our maker and our king, to worship the risen and reigning Christ in whom we are glad. And I wonder as we consider this phrase, let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Does your praise of God in this assembly indicate that you are glad in God? that He is your soul's delight. If such joy is to be evident, we must sing with enthusiasm. Verse 3 indicates as much when it says, Let them praise His name with dancing and make music to Him with tambourine and harp. There is a call here to exuberant, energetic, heartfelt worship. 
Now I wonder, what are we saying to the angels who watch us? What are we saying to our children? What do we say to unbelievers who assemble among us on the Lord's day if our praise is dull and dry and lackluster? What do we say? How we sing in this assembly testifies to the level of our joy in God. Many argue from this verse that God wants us to use music in our assembly that encourages people to dance in the aisles. Is this the right application? We should stop on this for a moment. Let's think about it. Is this how we apply this verse? First of all, I think that this thinking, which is very prevalent among us in this world, I think this view fails to adequately consider the cultural context of ancient Israel. The Hebrew people were far more demonstrative than is generally the case in our culture. It's interesting, believers who defend a rock concert atmosphere by appealing to verses such as this verse do not worry about imitating ancient Hebrew funeral practices. If you're going to claim that we must dance in our worship services to boisterous music because ancient Israel did so, then consistency would demand that you wear sackcloth to the next funeral, dump ashes on your head, and walk into the funeral home wailing at the top of your voice. If you claim the Bible demands that we dance in our services, then you should also insist that wedding receptions include the newly married couple going into a private room and presenting evidence of the woman's virginity to the boisterous shouts of all of the people gathered for the wedding. I think enough has been said to say we have a bit more of a subdued culture, don't we? And most of us are pretty comfortable with that. If it is okay for us to follow more subdued funeral and wedding practices, I think it is not evil for us to follow more subdued worship practices. There's really a false thinking there that many draw. Dancing to tambourines in worship was a cultural expression of joy which every Hebrew found comfortable. It was as natural to them as watching a bride walk down an aisle is to us. So I think there's cultural context to consider. Secondly, I think the view that this is demanding that we have a dancing service on Sundays fails to compare apples with apples. To equate the music and dancing of the Hebrews with the kind of music that is associated with dancing in churches in our culture is illogical. To equate lyres and harps with amplified electric guitars, let's say. To equate tambourines and cymbals with percussion instruments of any kind in our day is illogical. It happens all the time. The literature is there. The books are written. The articles stand. But it's really illogical. We honestly do not know a whole lot about the actual music the Hebrews used. And to try to defend rock concerts and churches by appeal to biblical examples such as this verse is really just silliness. In fact, there's solid evidence that Hebrew worship emphasized stringed instruments, none of which, of course, were amplified, and not that amplification is evil. It's not. However, we must think of the context. In the context of that day, there was greater emphasis on stringed instruments than on any other In fact, there is solid evidence, as Old Testament scholar R.K. Harrison claims, that tambourines were forbidden in the temple area altogether. In other words, there's evidences that there were certain kinds of music for certain places and certain times, and we often just quickly discard 
all of that background. This might even indicate that much temple and synagogue worship was rather tame and meditative. Again, I think it's false to simply tag into one verse and to draw massive conclusions off of it. In fact, trumpets and cymbals and tambourines, if you watch in Scripture and you find their uses in Scripture, you will find that usually these seem to find expression at times when the worship is outside and at a time of unique celebration for the people of God, such as the crossing of the Red Sea where tambourines were used, such as David bringing up the ark to Mount Zion in 2 Samuel 6, such as the dedication of Jerusalem's wall under Nehemiah's leadership in Nehemiah chapter 12. The point is that we must exercise caution not to draw false conclusions based on false equations between two cultures that are radically different. Let me say thirdly, we must recognize that there is no call in the New Testament for dancing in churches. The Old Testament often mentions dancing and singing together. The New Testament only mentions singing in the congregation. It does not mention dancing. This does not mean dancing is inherently evil. The Bible does not mention sitting on chairs in the assembly. That doesn't mean that they are evil. Dancing is not evil in and of itself. But it's not mentioned in the context of New Testament churches, and we must at least consider this point. We at least can conclude that it's not a mandate for every culture. In the end, we should seek to employ music that exalts the name and glory of God, remembering that we are worshiping Him, not merely seeking personal pleasure as we gather together. I don't think there's anything wrong with personal pleasure in our worship. We should seek it in one sense, but it's not the ultimate quest. The ultimate quest is for us to consider our culture and how we in that culture can bring honor and glory to the Lord. There are songs that are appropriately meditative, and there is evidence that there were such songs in Hebrew culture. There are songs that are more exuberant, and there are times when such singing is more appropriate. And I think we would apply that even within our church, perhaps sometimes at camp. The singing may be a bit different there. At VBS, it may be a bit different there. It's a bit different here in our assembly on Sunday morning than it might be on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night. We need to consider these things, and certainly within your own home, there is a different situation there as well. But all of that having been said, I just call us as a church to use our minds. There's a lot of mindless argumentation that goes on, and a proof text like this really doesn't go very far at all. Having said that, while I don't believe that the Bible mandates that we dance in the aisles in our assembly, having said that, who are we to do anything less than to give our all to the worship of God? We must sing His praise with enthusiasm and with joy, remembering that we are worshiping in His presence. There will be times when that's more subdued. There will be times when that's more meditative. There will be times when we need to sing loud for joy to the Lord. But we should never come together as God's people to sing His praises with dull, dry, lackluster expressions, with anemic worship that is drawn away from what we are truly doing. May we gather together and lift up our voices with great joy because God is worthy of our highest praise.
As a culture, we will work and we will struggle to find what that is. As a church community, we will struggle to find what that is. That's life, that's music. But may we always come to pour out our soul and to give our best in worship to the Lord. The psalmist continues in verse 4, The Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the humble with salvation. This is a stunning truth. God takes delight in His people. He saves those who humble themselves before Him. He crowns us with His victorious salvation. No longer clamoring for our own glory, we can assemble as a community and we can sing to God and rejoice in His grace. May we do so. And may we ever be filled with wonder to consider that the Lord takes delight in His people. Verse 5 says, Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. To be chosen as those who praise God is such a high calling. The consideration should pierce our hearts so that we sing for joy even on our beds. The Hebrew word can be translated couches. It refers to what people slept on and also what they ate on. Remember, they reclined and kind of laid down at the table And these couches were used for sleep and for reclining at a meal. One commentator says that the bed is the place of soliloquy in the Old Testament. That is, it's the place where an individual is alone and speaks out what is truly in their heart. In other words, genuine praise is not to be limited to the assembly. It is to find expression in the privacy of one's home. I know people. There are people who have come to this church who have told me with their own voices, we never sung songs of praise to God in our home. We never talked about God except when we were at church. Thankfully, that was a great testimony of change in their life. But I hope that's not you. Come to church and the only time that you sing to God, the only time that you lift up praises to Him is when you're here in assembly. We should sing to God on our beds. We should sing, that is, in private, maybe in our culture, in the shower. Sometime when you're alone, in the car. We should lift up praises to God. In other words, the praise of the Lord should fill our souls, not simply be something we turn on like a switch on Sunday mornings. There is something desperately wrong with a praise team member who dances and jives with great enthusiasm in front of an assembly, but whose worship of God in private is lukewarm at best. Public worship that is not grounded in private worship is empty performance. It is a show, and it is a farce. And there is something equally wrong with us in the context of our church if the only time that we worship God is when we gather here in church. Is this the only time you sing His praises? Is this the only time? May God find us worshiping at home so that the enthusiasm of our worship in assembly is genuine. There's only one way to make a person who finds no joy in God find joy in the worship of a church. I believe this should be a distinctive culture. The only way someone who out there finds no joy in God comes into this place and finds joy in worship. The only way is if we change the worship. It's to change the church's worship into something that the unregenerate finds comfortable 
And when the unregenerate finds the worship of a church comfortable, that church has lost its distinctiveness in the world. And we must question if what's taking place is genuine worship. When the worship environment of a church is indistinct from the world, it then becomes very easy to modify the gospel so as not to ruin the comfortable environment. I realize that what I'm saying tends to keep a church smaller. There are people who do not know the Lord that come into our assembly and find it very uncomfortable. They're not used to these types of songs. They're not used to this kind of expression. They're not used to this kind of focus on the praise of God. Our job, first of all, is to do what God calls us to do. And secondly, believe me, there's a world out there that needs to see a different place, a different culture, a different environment, a place where God's name is hallowed, a place, in fact, at times where they feel uncomfortable. The closer that we come to stand in the presence of God, the more uncomfortable an ungodly person is going to feel. So may we give our all Focus our attention on the praise of God that is distinct, that is pure, that is vibrant in our hearts. By His grace, may He help us to this. Now at verse 6, we come to a hinge in the passage. As it says, May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands. Quite an interesting picture, isn't it? You can see the first half of the verse goes with what is above This singing of praise to God. May the praise of God be in their mouths or in their throats, as the Hebrew would have it. And the second half, a double-edged sword in their hands. So verse 6 is a summary of the distinctive culture of praise commended to the people of God in the preceding verses. We are to promote such an environment as we exalt the splendor of God in assembly. That is our call, that is our duty, that is our privilege, that is our joy. But verse 6b, second part of the verse, transitions into the second half of the psalm where we are again called as a redeemed community to participate in a distinctive culture, this time in the execution of God's will. Here it is with a double-edged sword in their hands. Verse 7, to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. The people who are to have the praise of God in their mouths are the same people who are to wield a double-edged sword in their hands. What in the world does this mean? What does it mean to us? There are some who have done what others have done, to the phrase of dancing and tambourines with this phrase in history and have done so with great harm. Caspar Sclopius, in his work Classicum Belli Sacri, appealed to this verse, and the Roman Catholic princes of Europe took swords and went to battle against the Protestant princes of Europe following the Reformation. They just obeyed the Scriptures. They picked up a sword and went to war. Earlier, Thomas Munzer fueled a peasant uprising in Germany by appealing to this same verse. Both of these men, I think, failed to understand the outworking of salvation history, as have many others like them, who have taken these types of passages and have said that the followers of Jesus Christ should take a sword and enforce the faith. 
They don't know where they stand. They have lost a sense of the purposes of God when they say this. Briefly, let me break it down into four ideas. We have, first of all, pre-exilic Israel. What was the call to Israel before they went into exile into Babylon? Coming into Canaan, this passage was precisely their call. God said, I want you to go into Canaan. I want you to go with a sword in hand. And I want you to execute vengeance upon the Canaanites who have rebelled against me for 400 years. This land has been given to you. I am the sovereign of the universe to give you this land, go into this land, and crush the Canaanites. They were to take these instructions very literally. But there is secondly post-exilic Israel. That is Israel after returning from the Babylonian captivity to the promised land. And they took such ideas more as eschatological. That is more looking into the future. This psalm looked forward to the coming of Messiah who would crush the enemies of God. There would be a day that would come when once again Israel would rule physically over her enemies as Messiah would rule in righteousness. But it had a look to the future in post-exilic Israel. But then we come to our own day, our own dispensation between the comings of Christ. Israel is not for us an example to follow in this matter. Jesus did not teach his followers to take up a sword and to press the faith at sword point. He never taught that. In fact, if there's any indication of what he taught, it is his hanging on the cross. He taught us to die, not to take life. But you know, God saves no one to sit around. God saves His people that we might execute His will in this world. And for the church, this means that we proclaim the gospel to all nations in the authority of Jesus. Redeemed from the captivity of sin, we are God's new warriors commissioned to assault the gates of hell with the message of the salvation of Christ. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but is a spiritual battle against the forces of Satan, Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 6. The times have changed. We need to understand where we are on the line of salvation history. And it means that to us, in application, with praise on our mouths, we are sent into this world to execute the will of God. Those we subdue will be saved. They will come into the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and those who reject this gospel will be condemned. Our duty is different, but we too follow the will of God to go into this world and conquer it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not taking lives with a physical sword, but wielding the sword of the Spirit and laying down our lives in witness. There is a fourth time, and that is the future day of the Lord. When Messiah returns, Jesus will lead His armies against the rulers of the earth and will subject all to His righteous rule. This future judgment is prefigured in the extermination of the Canaanites, but this judgment will ultimately subdue the entire earth, 
as Jesus reigns sovereign in power for 1,000 years. Revelation chapter 19 and 20. So there will be a day when once again this idea of a double-edged sword in the hands of God's people will be literal and will be carried out by the armies of Christ as He reigns and establishes His rule. We have to know where we are. There's a day when He will call His armies to pick up a sword again. And they will pick it up because they will do so to the glory of God. We need to know where we are. So the reason we do not wield a literal sword in our day is not because Christianity has evolved from its primitive roots. God has every right to take life whenever He chooses. He has every right to exercise physical judgment, and in the end, Jesus will do just that. The history of salvation has progressed, however, past the subjugation of the Canaanites, and it is moving toward the final day of conquest when Jesus rallies His troops in literal battle and establishes His rule here. And it is the saints' glory to be used of God to vindicate His glory, as the second part of verse 9 says, this is the glory of all His saints. Depends on where you land, what it looks like, and what it means. But this is the glory of His saints to be involved in His work in this world and to carry out His purposes, to execute His will in this day. So as the people of God were called in this psalm to form a distinctive culture, as the psalm ends with that phrase again, praise the Lord, we are reminded that our church is to be a community in which we corporately and enthusiastically praise God. That's who we are. That's our culture. That's our community. That's what we do. We lift up the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also to be a culture in which we corporately execute God's will on earth with great energy. It takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? We have homes, we have jobs, we have school, we have responsibilities just like everyone else in the world, but we also have this call from God to be more busy, to work harder, to carry out His purposes in this earth as a community of people. He's called us to this. We have been saved to form a new body of worshiping and working disciples of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is not a social club. It is not a corporation. It is not an entertainment agency. We are the people of God called out of this world to sing the praises of God and to fulfill His will on this earth. And we must labor as a church to see that these two objectives blend together to create a vibrant spiritual environment. If our worship is not fervent, our service will grow anemic and dispirited and lack authenticity. On the other hand, no matter how spirited, if our worship does not fuel witness, if our praise is not accompanied by service to God, our singing becomes an act. As we head into this new year, may we determine to create a culture in which praise and service combine to bring glory to God, such that He finds pleasure in Eden Baptist Church 
as we find greater and greater joy in Him. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, for the exhortation of Your Word, and I pray we just simply ask You now, as we've reiterated the point throughout the sermon, we simply ask You, Father, to create us as a culture of praise and of service to Your cause. May we realize who we are as Your people. May we submit to Your purposes. I pray, God, that whatever happens, there's so much that we cannot control. But whatever happens as a church, Father, whatever happens in our individual lives, I pray that this assembly would be a place where people come to exult in the splendor of God. I ask that no human being would ever detract from that focus. We would never become an assembly of performers or entertainers gathered simply to tickle the fancy of our world. But I pray that we would gather as those called out from the world to offer distinctive praise to Your name. Help us as we always deal with the issue of music and help us, Lord, that what we can certainly know and what stays fixed are the words that we use. As we blend together simple expressions of praise with great and profound theological hymns, I pray, Father, that always the words that we sing would bring pleasure to You. And may You look to our hearts and see there souls that are bent toward Your praise and thrill in the opportunity to exalt Your name. And then I ask You, Father, that You would create us more and more to be a community of service and witness. That we would carry out Your work in this world and know what that is and go hard after it. Teach us, Father, to execute Your will in this day. To lay down our lives, to sacrifice time and resources and abilities and money to carry out the cause of the gospel of Christ. May this be true of our church. We cannot control what others say. We cannot control entirely what happens in our life. But Father, may our focus be right. May the environment of this church be genuine and honor Your will. Teach us to praise and teach us to proclaim Your truth throughout all the world. We pray this, Father that your name would be glorified. And for anyone who has not come to be part of the redeemed community, I pray that you draw them through your Spirit today to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, we are not your people. Apart from Him, we sing only old, tired, sensual, self-centered songs. But I ask God that you would transform anyone who does not worship you in spirit and in truth into a genuine worshiper through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do that work among us, we pray, as only you can. And we submit to you as your people, asking now that as we sing, we might do so with joy in our heart, proclaiming your truth in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.